This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. This podcast discusses themes that may be distressing to some. Support is available. You can contact QLife, which provides Australia-wide anonymous support for the LGBTIQ plus community. QLife services are free and include both telephone and web chat support delivered by trained LGBTIQ plus community members across the country. Call 1-800-184-527 or visit qlife.org.au to access the web chat. Hello and welcome to the latest in LGBTIQ plus health and policy, the podcast that brings you health and well-being hot topic discussions. Each episode, we bring you conversations with leading voices in LGBTIQ plus health and well-being and stimulating discussions with panels made up of LGBTIQ plus leaders and influencers. I'm your host, Triana Butler. Thank you for joining me. This episode of The Latest, I'm joined by Dr. Ruth McNair. Dr. McNair has been a general practitioner for nearly 30 years working in Melbourne and in the Northern Territory. In 2009, she completed her PhD in lesbian and bisexual women's health and has clinical interests in lesbian and bisexual women's health, as well as fertility and pregnancy care and the health of trans and gender diverse people. She's an honorary associate professor at the University of Melbourne and is an active voice in LGBTIQ policy and community development. We talk about why a focus on LGBTIQ plus communities health and well-being is so important along with trends in the health needs of our communities and what general practitioners can do to provide safe and appropriate care here it is my conversation with dr ruth mcnair well dr ruth mcnair welcome thanks for your time today pleasure nice to join you now, Ruth, you've been a GP since 1993, and over that time, there's got to have been a lot that's changed in, in the health and well-being of LGBTIQ plus people. Mm. What have you observed over that time? Yeah, look, when I started, or particularly in my practice, which was LGBT-specific, uh, really there was hardly any focus on LGBTIQ health. Uh, back then, it would have been... LG health or even just G uh, and then gradually the T added in and then gradually the Q and you know it's been a very slow but progressive change to be more inclusive of all the diversities so yeah I mean even if I had to look up something for a patient you know specific to their LGBTI status it was really hard to find information there was very little research whereas now it's just this explosion of information it's great what have you noticed in terms of the patients? What's the, I imagine back in 1993, the patients that you would have been seeing, there would have been probably quite a lot of, of shame and, and trauma around that. How's that changed across the years? Yeah, look, I guess at first I was mostly seeing older adults, you know, probably 40 plus who are LG or B. Um, very few people came out as bi actually. And then just a smattering of older trans patients, binary trans you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, and then gradually increasing the number of younger people, you know, same-sex attracted young people, uh, and then more recently, say the last decade, lots more young trans and gender diverse people. So it's been a really interesting change, you know, as society has changed, then I started to see more in my practice as well. 
Well, from all that experience over, I mean, it's almost 30 years now, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's a badge of honor, I promise. What, what do you think are the most urgent health and well-being issues for LGBTIQ plus people right now that need to be tended to? Yeah, look, there are so many. I mean, suicide and suicidality, that's got to be at the top, I'd say, you know, really disturbing uh, figures come out of the Private Lives 3 and writing themselves for research. And, you know, both of them show really high rates of suicidality, uh, completed suicides too. So, you know, that's definitely on top for subgroups of our community. And they would be, you know, people with trans experience, people with abuse experiences, um, refugees, asylum seekers, you know, it's just a whole range of people who are very disadvantaged in our community. Um, but beyond suicide, you know, mental health, obviously, um, fertility care, I mean, that's one of the more positive things that are happening. Lots more people in our community are interested to become pregnant or, you know, create families. And I think that's been a lovely change, but we need more support around that. Alcohol and drug, obviously, we need more support there uh, and more targeted health promotion, which I think is quite a gap, you know, if you're thinking of STIs or you're thinking of um, drug and alcohol uh, support, thinking of mental health, there's very little that's targeted to subgroups in our community. And it's hard to take mainstream messages and apply them to yourself if you're a LGBTIQA plus. So, you know, a lot more work needs to go into that to build that health promotion, make it really tailored to us. We hear a lot about the the mental health concerns for our, our queer communities. In terms of physical health, uh, I don't think we hear about that very often, but where are we at with that? Mm. Well, I think there are some really big priorities for physical health. I mean, we're starting to see emerging information about cancer risk factors uh, for subgroups. You know, for example, uh, trans people who've been on their gender-affirming hormones for a few years, we're worried that maybe they'll have a cancer risk there that has not been researched very well. Um, you know, another area is STIs and the sort of broad range of STIs. I mean, obviously monkeypox has emerged lately, but, you know, what else is out there and how are we managing to educate our communities about that? Uh, and then health promotion. I mean, things like should gay and bisexual men get their prostate screening and how should we deliver that uh, to make it more more appropriate for them and their needs. Uh, what about people with intersex variations and the cancer risks there? Is that a big deal or is it not? Uh, what about their fertility issues uh, and fertility more broadly? So, you know, I think there's so many areas of physical health that have been assumed to be the same, but actually we're seeing some pretty important differences. If it's okay, I might touch on, um, you brought up people with intersex variations there. Mm. Um, and, and I know that the Darlington statement's been really, really important for the intersex mm. community. Um, what kind of improvements have we seen in care for the intersex community over the last little while? And, and kind of how far do we have to go there? Mm. Yeah, look, I've been involved in Victoria a little bit with the uh, advisory committee structure around intersex issues. And it was so open, eye-opening for me because I heard from a range of intersex advocates uh, and parents of kids with intersex variations. And really, this is about first understanding the childhood experiences that a lot of people have had unwanted surgeries uh, and also have had 
lack of honesty from health professionals about why this was done. Uh, and this applies to their parents as well. You know, the parents have just been drawn along in the, the scenario of let's make this person look sort of normal. But what is normal? I mean, you know, now intersex advocates are saying this is a huge range of normality. You can't just focus down on these sort of very straight heteronormative ideas of normality. So that's one big issue to deal with, you know, how are we both preventing those unnecessary surgeries in the first place, but also uh, apologising and understanding the impacts they have. Um, but then there's much bigger discussion around uh, the health and wellbeing needs in terms of mental health. Um, families can be uh, a difficult place for some people with intersex variations. Uh, because they don't feel like they fit in and they don't feel understood. And then as they um, age, uh, what about their fertility? Has that been discussed with them at all? So, you know, there's so many issues that I don't think we're doing really well at all in the mainstream health community at the moment. Uh, you know, I guess it's like a minority issue. I might have a handful of people with insect variations in my practice, but I only know about their particular uh, stories and so how can I build my knowledge to be a bit more inclusive? How does what you do on a day-to-day -day basis change depending on the kind of sub-community that you're dealing with? Yeah, well, I mean, as a GP, I'm doing individualised care, really. So every person who comes in, I try to take their perspective on board to understand where they're coming from, from sexuality, gender, um, body, diversity. So understanding them first and then trying to apply my knowledge to their life. Um, because, you know, sometimes we assume that there's been discrimination or abuse and the person just flied along, had a great life, you know, great family, really supportive environment. So that happens too. And I think we can't forget that that's a strength in our community. Uh, so I try to uncover, you know, what's this person's life been about and what's challenged them and what's influencing their health. You're listening to the latest in LGBTIQ plus health and policy with LGBTIQ plus health Australia. Now, Dr. McNair, LGBTIQ plus health Australia are advocating for a 10 year LGBTIQ plus health and wellbeing action plan. I believe you've seen what they're calling for. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the value of one of these plans? I think this is absolutely critical to developing the right policy at a national level. So I've been involved in Victoria for, I guess, 20 years with policy development around LGBTIQ A plus people. Uh, when we first started, the first ministerial advisory committee on LGBTI issues was about 2000. Uh, we all sat around the table and it was a blank sheet of paper, like nothing had been done. There was no precedent in Australia, very little overseas. So, I mean, we had the privilege of trying to dream up how health policy should look uh, for our populations. And it took a long time, uh, a lot of consultation, a lot of heartache around what were the priorities. But, you know, in the end, I think now we're seeing a, a whole of government LGBTIQ uh, strategy, which is not just health, but it's across human rights, uh, the law, education. And I think that's been an end point of this 20 years of advocacy and lobbying and discussion and consultation. And I can see the huge benefit in Victoria of having this framework because it's no longer possible to forget that we exist. When you're talking about healthcare, about funding, about policies, you know, there's a big statement there that says we have to look at this population 
really seriously, but that's not there at the federal level yet and really is needed. What would the implementation of this 10-year plan look like for you as a GP on a practical level? Yeah, look, I'm I'm on board, but what about all the GPs out there who really haven't got any idea, you know? They've got multiple LGBT patients who may or may not have come out to their GP. That GP may have no understanding of these um, subgroup issues uh, and the knowledge that they need, uh, the skills they need to assist the person to be comfortable and included. So if there was a federal strategy that front and centre said to GPs and all other parts of the health professions, you need to sit up and take notice and you need to get some training, you need to upskill and be competent to help this population group, that would really help because at the moment it's sort of like barking into the void, you know. I mean, I do some training and a lot of GPs who come are the ones who aren't on the fence, but most of them are sitting on the fence going, oh, I'm not sure, you know, do I really need to put effort into this? Maybe I'll just do heart disease and, you know, mental health for the whole population and not put, you know, concerted effort into learning about this group. It does seem, certainly over the last five to seven years, that a lot of GPs are kind of on board now and are much more uh, keen to say, you know, I, I want to get better at this and I want to get better mm. at helping LGBTIQ plus communities. What is the kind of shift that you've noticed among those GPs? Oh, look, I think it's largely come from their patients. You know, people have been more willing to come out and to talk about their lives more openly with GPs. And that's brave because, you know, the the uh, story is that it's hard to talk about it. You don't know what the response will be. It could be quite damaging to that GP relationship. So, okay, some people have been brave enough to talk about these things to their GP and the GP has then been able to see that they don't have that full knowledge set that they need. So that's driven the desire to learn more. Um, And I mean, I think a health and wellbeing action plan at a national level would create more of that authorising environment from government. Um, It would also hopefully create some funding streams so that we could develop more specific health promotion tools uh, and policies that would feed into general practice and other areas of the healthcare system. So, you know, I think it's come from below, it's come from the patients themselves, but now we need action across the board, including right at the top from the health minister down. So I think that's going to happen if we can get such an action plan on the table and make sure that there's enough people uh, contributing to it from diverse groups in our community. You're listening to the latest in LGBTIQ plus health and policy. I'm joined today by Dr. Ruth McNair, who is uh, an expert in women's health, lesbian health, bisexual health, trans health, mental health and well-being, so many areas. Now, Dr. Ruth, access to primary care is really, really important for good health and well-being. We know this. Um, and, and so to those GPs who may be listening to this podcast uh, and they want to know, how do I provide what is a safe and appropriate care to LGBTIQ plus people, they may not know how to do that. What kind of tips can you give out today for any of them who might be listening to this? Yeah, I think it's easy and it's cheap. 
So it's great to have a list that people can go through and just go, yeah, we, we can do this in our clinic. So I think it has to be a whole of clinic approach from the front door to the consulting room, uh, you know, appropriate level of signage, uh, representation of different groups in our community. You know, it's not good enough just to have the rainbow flag up or a trans flag. You've got to then produce the goods in the clinic, uh, training up the reception staff to be really inclusive. I mean, in our clinic, we try not to use titles. You know, they're very gendered and why would you bother? You know, just use a person's actual name. Um, you know, not making assumptions at reception about who's with who and whether they're partnered or friends or supporters. Um, that's all really helpful through the clinic, you know, as a person's entering and trying to work out, is this a safe place? Um, also having, you know, allied staff like counsellors, practice nurses, other allied health who are on board and have demonstrated LGBTIQ inclusive practice, I think that's really helpful so that you know if you're referring someone within your clinic that it's going to be a safe place. Uh, and then very much in the consulting room being really uh, open to understanding that individual, asking about pronouns, telling them your pronouns, uh, understanding their life context um, and then yeah, proceeding with you know real real life questioning. I think some people are rightly critical of GPs and other health providers that we try to learn from our patients. Um, and up to a point, I think that's really helpful because we're trying to learn about that individual. But if, if we then treat the patient as uh, my 101 trans health uh, you know, educator, that's not appropriate uh, because that's not why they're there and the power dynamic is so imbalanced that it's really hard for the patient to say, hang on a sec, I don't want to teach you about trans people. I want to get my needs met. But that is also, as someone who is trans and who knows a lot of people, a lot of my friends who are also trans, for a very long time, that's been the way that we've had to approach GPs mm. because just the knowledge hasn't been there, the interest hasn't been there, yeah, and the actual understanding of trans bodies hasn't been there. Mm, exactly. So you've been resorting to that. But, you know, in a good inclusive practice, the GP will have worked out what they need to learn and sort it out through professional circles. Uh, they might take a question on notice and I think that's totally fine. You know, I've got plenty of times where someone's said to me, oh gee, how do I fix this? Or, you know, what should I do around that? You know, is there a bi network for um, queer, bi, trans people, you know, whatever? And I'll say, oh, thanks for the question. Let me check and come back to you. So I think patients are really appreciative of that level of honesty that you don't have to know everything but you're also going to make the effort of trying to find out through the right circles and not rely on that patient to teach you everything they know. To bring this home, um, Dr. Ruth, what's your vision for the health and well-being of LGBTIQ plus people? <laughs> oh, look, wow. If I'd, if I'd said this 20 years ago when I was starting my advocacy work, I'd have pretty much said I want them to be treated like anyone else in the health system. But actually, I've moved on from that. I think we deserve better than that. I think we need to be treated with a great deal of respect because of the experiences we've often collectively and individually experienced, you know, difficult times in the healthcare system, delays in seeking care because your last experience was so bad. 
So I think we need to step up as health providers and say we acknowledge that uh, we're responsible for it, we want to fix it, uh, and we want to do a much better job. So that's what I'm looking at, that we have a really inclusive and affirming way of caring for LGBTIQ people. Well, LGBTIQ plus Health Australia are advocating for this 10-year health and wellbeing action plan for the LGBTIQ plus communities. Looking at like a, a blue sky kind of question, but, but what is that going to look like in 10 years if we can, if we can get this to happen? Mm. Well, if Victoria is anything to go by, it will become more and more diverse. So at first, you know, we were pretty fr- – well, I was frustrated because I was really interested in lesbian by women's health and I had to put everyone together and say, okay, this is the LGBTIQ package. Uh, but now we're starting to drill down and go, okay, what should we be doing better for bi women? And what should we be doing better for people within sex variations who happen to be trans? You know, I mean, there are so many subgroups. What should we be doing better for people with disabilities who are also LGBTIQ? Um, what about the refugees and asylum seekers? So, you know, I think the, the the initial federal plan will be pretty broad brush, but I'm hoping as it, the decade proceeds, it will become very specific to these subgroups and, and more emerging subgroups as we go along that we can't even imagine at the moment. Well, Dr. Ruth McNair, thank you so much for joining us today on the latest. Really appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to LHA Presents The Latest in LGBTIQ plus health and policy. If this podcast has raised any issues for you, you can contact QLife, which provides Australia-wide anonymous LGBTI peer support and referral for people wanting to talk about a range of issues, including sexuality, identity, gender, feelings, or relationships. QLife services are free and include both telephone and web chat support delivered by trained LGBTI community members across the country. Call 1-800-184-527 or visit qlife.org.au to access the web chat. If you would like to suggest a person that you want to hear being interviewed on the podcast, please let us know by emailing info at lgbtiqhealth.org.au and include the podcast in the subject. This podcast was produced by Joy, Australia's rainbow community media organisation. For more information on Joy's podcasting services, please visit joy.org.au forward slash services. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.